All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 258, and today we are talking about books being released on May 5th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Kelly Jensen, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. How is it time for another first Tuesday of books already? I feel like it's been 12 years since the last one. Oh, <laughs> I feel like it went by so fast. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's affecting everyone differently. I certainly, you know, like last week was, was not a good week for me. Like, I, I feel like I've been doing pretty good with everything that's going on. But last week, it was, that was a tough week. So maybe I'm just feeling better this week. So everything seems better. <laughs> yeah, the last couple of days have been fine on my end. But like, I don't know. We have had hardly any good weather here. It's been rainy and gloomy for like three months. Same here. And so it's been rough because I'm just like, I'm done with it. I'm so done with it. Yeah. I was looking at the weather this morning and it's supposed to be like rain for the next (laughs) seven days. It's like, okay, I've had enough. (laughs) Yeah, for real. (sighs) Should we talk about some books? Yes, but first, can I tell you about my new favorite thing? Yeah. I just started watching Nailed It on Netflix. Apparently, I missed that this was a show. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, actually. Oh, well, I think that Nicole Byer is adorable. Like, I love her on The Good Place and on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I had no idea that she did a show where people who can't bake try to recreate amazing cakes. And it's <laughs> it's amazing. I find it very relaxing if you need to just, like, zone out and not think about anything. <laughs> and the end results are always hilarious. So... <laughs> That is my new favorite thing. Not, and there's only four seasons. I just got done watching all, like, the first 30 seasons of The Simpsons. So <laughs> it'll be fun to watch a short short show. All right. I am going to talk about my first book. But first, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman. The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant Rivals to Lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is, until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gene and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. All right, my first pick is one of the best thrillers I've read in a long time. I'm really excited to talk about this. It is A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrate. I loved her first book, which was Reconstructing Amelia, and her other books, and she has a YA series that I enjoy. And I, I'm not going to lie, I thought when I first heard of this book that it was a courtroom thriller, and it is not. But it's still fantastic because I'm always up for like a good good courtroom thriller, like a good trial. Um, but this is all kinds of stuff going on. And it's so, so great. 
I do want to give a trigger warning for this novel. There is sexual assault involving a minor as well as exploitation of a minor. So if that is something that you are sensitive to, you might want to skip this one. It is told by a couple different people. Uh, the first person being Lizzie. Lizzie is a lawyer at a prestigious firm in New York City. And she handles, she does not do murder trials, basically is what I, what I want to say. But she gets this phone call. And it's from her old classmate from law school, Zach Grayson. Zach is now like a successful tech millionaire. And he's calling her from Rikers. He's in jail. They used to be friends in law school, but they haven't spoken since then. And he asks her to come see him in jail. And when she gets there, he tells her that he has been arrested for assaulting a police officer. But the details of that are actually that he found the body of his wife, Amanda, in their Park Slope home. And called the police, and then when the police got there, there was kind of a scuffle, and they arrested him. And he wants Lizzie to defend him. And Lizzie's like, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, but I don't do murder trials. I've never done a murder trial. And he's like, please, please, you're the only person I trust. And she's like, no, I'm absolutely not doing this. And he hasn't been arrested for Amanda's murder, but when, you know, Lizzie's talking to other people, they're saying, like, basically, it was like a trumped-up charge to get him into jail because they suspect that he killed his wife, and they're going to arrest him for that anyway. And so, like, while he's in Rikers, he's getting beat up. And he's not a big man. He's a very slight man. So she's worried for his safety. And so she's, like, telling her boss about this. And she's like, you know, oh, you know, I've been doing this. I went to visit my friend. And he says, you should take this case. I want you to take this case. And now she's like, oh, why did I open my mouth? And so suddenly, she has a murder case. Now, another person that we hear from is the victim, Amanda Grayson. In between the chapters with Lizzie, we hear her story going, uh, like, I think seven days before this party. You hear about this party that was going on in Amanda and Zach's neighborhood. It's thrown by one of Amanda's Park Slope friends. It's a very grown-up party. And they had left the party separately. And then he finds Amanda dead, supposedly, unless he killed her. Uh, and so we hear from Amanda and, like, what she's doing and what she discovers, like, in the time up to this party, and we find out that, you know, she has some trauma in her past. She has a, a dark secret. And we also hear about her Park Slope friends. We hear about their lives. They're all having problems. And there's also, in between all this, there are some documents either pertaining to witnesses being interviewed at a trial or emails about an investigation into a scandal at the prestigious school where all of Amanda and her friend's children attend. So while Lizzie, the lawyer, is investigating, you know, try trying to find, like, evidence that Zach is innocent, she's actually, like, finding more evidence that he is guilty. Apparently, they had a very cold marriage. He was not very affectionate. He never spent any time with her. He wouldn't take her phone calls at work. There's whispers of an affair that he was having. And the more she looks into it, the more she thinks, like, ooh, Zach is guilty. And while this is going on, she's having her own problems. Uh, sh her husband is an alcoholic, and his drinking has cost them a lot. It has cost him his job. Uh, he was in an accident that was very costly, and so that is jeopardizing Lizzie's career because they owe all this money now, and it's kind of a scandal. And, the you know, he's really, like, pushing the for better or worse parts of their wedding vows. Like, she's having a really hard time with him. Like, he still hasn't found a job, and he's still drinking. And so you get all these threads of all these things going on, and then she teases the story out perfectly. I mean... I was flying through this book like, why is she telling us this? What is happening here? Oh, my goodness, a grown-up party. Oh, goodness. You know, like, who's there? Who's going upstairs? Who's doing this? And then at the very last minute, she yanks all these threads tight, and it squeezes your brain like a corset, and it's so good. It's like, it's the salacious thriller that you that you are craving right now um, to take your mind off everything. Uh, and she, the details in this are spectacular. Um, she did a lot of research. I was really impressed by, like, all the legal jargon being thrown around and all, like, the, well, you know, you could do this, but you can't do this. Like, it was very impressive. And I just thought it was so great. It is A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCray. My first pick is something I want to say that's a little, like, out of the ordinary for my normal reading. And that is a book called Goldilocks by Laura Lamb. And the comps for this one are The Martian Meets The Handmaid's Tale. And if I'm being honest, I don't especially like either of those comps for this book. It's something different. And I suspect given how relevant and realistic the book feels right now in this moment, uh, that maybe the marketing for this one will shift a little bit. So 30 years. After the Atalanta 
takes five pioneering women into space, hoping to settle a faraway planet named Cavendish. Naomi, who is one of the Atlanta five is finally telling her story. And it begins with grand theft spaceship. The spaceship was stolen and it ends with earth's humans falling victim to a pandemic that might have been started purposefully. So Naomi, who was raised by this woman named Valerie Black after the deaths of her mother and father, is deeply in love with this woman, uh, Valerie, who's really, really smart. And Valerie invites her to be among the five women who will travel to this new planet in order to set up a new world. And it's going to be this utopian world free of the flaws that are plaguing Earth. Right now in this world, women's rights have been completely decimated. The environment is collapsing. And the reality is there aren't more than a few dozen quote unquote good years uh, left for Earth. So Naomi, along with three other women and Valerie herself, embark on this journey without permission from the government, but believe in their heart of hearts that they're doing the right thing. So they're on the spaceship, they're getting ready to go to Cavendish, and Naomi finds out that she's pregnant, and the father is one of the people who might be able to change the course of the future for planet Earth, but it won't be super easy and won't be without the power of the other women aboard the spaceship to um, steer the ship right. It's super immersive and dark, and it's about what it is to be a leader and what being a leadership is not. The writing is really, really good. It's engrossing, and it I thought evokes a really close to home scenario of globe of a global pandemic destroying the planet in conjunction with the devastating effects of human consumption, uh, climate change, and what it looks like when you revoke the liberties of women across the globe. But what makes this book so good is that what ultimately sounds to be this utopian setting in Cavendish isn't. Um, instead, the Story takes a ton of twists and turns that are surprising and ultimately change what it is these women aboard perceive to be good and flawed about human nature. You know, if you're if you're given the opportunity to start something new, do you go for it? Do you just burn down the past and try to forget about it? Or do you learn from the past and try to build something new uh, with the knowledge you have at hand? Uh, this is a really fabulous standalone science fiction space novel that grapples with a lot of big questions um, in a way that's really compelling and interesting. I thought Naomi, who is the main uh, character in the story, was really fantastic. And all the motives of the women on board the spaceship are really fascinating. And they're parsed out well enough to keep it clear that not everybody aboard has the best interests of everybody else in mind. It's hard to know if they're going to make it to Cavendish and create this world that they so desperately want to make. When I finished reading this one, I did a little bit of poking around and, and learned that this book was inspired a bit by the Mercury 13, which was a group of women who went through this battery of tests that men took uh, to join NASA. And while this privately funded group uh, ran these tests and found that the women could be equally successful as men, there never was actually a NASA program and no mission was taken and no women actually went to space here. Beyond this like very short synopsis of what Mercury 13 was, um, I don't know, but I definitely was interested to learn more because this book like blew my mind. It was so good. And like I said, super eerily reminiscent of things going on today, including a global pandemic. So if, if you don't want to read something that is very... Mm, contemporary, even though it's not contemporary, um, hold off on this one a bit. But if you are of the lean-in camp when it comes to reading books about pandemics, uh, you will absolutely want to pick up Goldilocks by Laura Lamb. Okay. My next pick is Network Effect by Martha Wells, which is the first full-length novel in the Murderbot series. Basically, I just want to talk about Murderbot. I never miss a chance to talk about the Murderbot books because I think it is my new favorite series. They've been coming out over the last few years. Uh, there are four novellas, uh, starting with All Systems Red, which has won awards. And I love this series so, so much. So this, like I said, is the first full-length novel. You should read the novellas in order, most definitely. It follows the story. The book definitely picks up after the novellas and talks about things that have happened, but you might be able to pull it off if you just read the book. But I recommend reading all of them because they're so good. Murderbot basically is a sentient security bot. 
this is set in the future and people are traveling in space and they're doing research and they're going to planets that they've never been to before. And their insurance requires that they bring security bots with them, which are basically like what they sound like. They're bots that like protect them and are aware of like incoming danger and stuff like that. And Murderbot, who um, named itself, gave itself the name Murderbot uh, for reasons I will mention in a minute, somehow became self-aware, but still pretends that it's a security bot. Like we're like, talking about like at the beginning of the series and, you know, pretends like, oh, yeah, I'm doing my job. But also it just sits in its bunk and watches its shows like inside its helmet all it really wants to do is just watch its shows Uh, murderbot is very sarcastic but also very competent and says that it doesn't want to help like says it to itself because we're it's narrated by murderbot that it doesn't want to help the humans but somehow always manages to save their hides murderbot's kind of like a cross between robocop and david rose i think is a good way to describe it and there is something that happened in murderbot's past uh, that they discuss it a little bit. So we know that there's something terrible that went wrong with Murderbot. And that's why it has named itself Murderbot. I call these books job competency porn because it's basically just an adventure story about how efficient Murderbot is at its job. Because it knows all the details to like every technology that it encounters. It hacks into systems. It erases its traces. It talks to other technology. It talks to other computers like their friends. It changes its look so that it appears to be an augmented human, um, which is a thing that people are now like you can have like jacks and ports in your body. And it has all this stuff done so that it looks like an augmented human. And there's like a hilarious part where it practices being a human and trying to like walk like a human and not like a deadly weapon because it has like guns in its arms and stuff like that. And in between the humor, there is just lots and lots and lots of kicking butt. I just, I love these stories. I would love to see this as a series, but I don't know how it would work because the entire thing is told from inside its helmet. Like it it almost always has a helmet on because it doesn't want people to see its face because it's not very good at making human expressions. So it almost always has its helmet on and it's gathering all the data that it needs by looking at all these screens inside its helmet and thinking all these thoughts about what it's doing and like talking about like what it's hacking into and all this stuff. So I don't know like how they could really pull it off on the screen, but I would love to see them try. Uh, it's so much fun. So I highly, highly, highly recommend checking out the series, which starts with All Systems Red. And this is the first full length novel for you fans out there that have read all the books. It is Network Effect by Martha Wells. My next pick sticks with the theme of space. Um, I promise not all of my picks are space theme, but first two are. And that is uh, We Dream of Space by Erin Entrada Kelly. And I am not a big middle grade reader, but I do know when I need a middle grade book, Erin Entrada Kelly's books always hit the spot. And her latest is no different. Um, It follows a family in January of 1986, experiencing a whole host of discontent and challenge amid the Challenger launch. So Bird and Fitch, short for Bernadette and, quote, Pitch a Fit, (laughs) are twins. Um, Their older brother, Cash, has been having a really hard time in school. And despite being older than them, he is in the same grade uh, as they are in seventh grade. So early in the story, things begin to spiral when Cash breaks his wrist and loses any and all interest in school again, which is threatening his chance to progress past seventh grade. Uh, Fitch is spending his free time at the local arcade, winning at a game that's been unpopular with his friends and his fellow peers, but one that he will defend to the death as a as a great game. Uh, he's got a really bad temper that he can't control or understand and it comes and goes at really inopportune times and then bird dreams of being the first female space commander so she has become absolutely fascinated with machinery and something that we get to see in the book through her drawings so there's drawings um, at the end of each of her chapters sort of showing how her mind works and thinks in terms of mechanics but Bird is really overlooked again and again in her family in particular because of her two brothers. Uh, so the home life of the three siblings isn't especially great. And mom and dad have 
a really rocky relationship, which comes out again and again in really unsettling ways. And it impacts each of the kids. And the only way that the siblings are hanging on is through their shared science teacher. And the science teacher had applied to be part of the teacher for space program, but didn't get accepted. So she spent a long time teaching the kids about the Challenger, about space, about um, the famous astronauts who've gone into space. And while Fitch and Cash aren't as invested in it as Bird is, um, it's this teacher and space itself, which kind of keeps all the threads of the story holding together. Um, this is really a slice of life book, and it's really aching and hard. And when the Challenger launches, all of the pain that's built up in each of these siblings explodes. Bird feels her dreams starting to fall apart and feels this great loneliness. Fitch has this extremely violent outburst in class because he's been bullied and also because of how much he's just like packed in from home. And then Cash continues to withdraw further, knowing that he can't play basketball because of his broken wrist and also because of his grades. The Challenger explosion, when it happened, I was really, really young. I was two. I don't remember it. But I do remember my mom talking about it when it happened. And I feel like this book really captures that era without being nostalgic for the 80s. Um, it's really quite contemporary in terms of how it approaches family challenges without attempting to make it sound as if family problems weren't common then because they were. The book reminded me a lot of a younger wife from many, many years back that captured some similar feelings and experiences about space and the possibility of what exists beyond this planet and how young people were impacted by the Challenger tragedy. Um, that is Jenny Moss's Taking Off. I think it was her only book, maybe, um, or maybe her only YA book. But um, as soon as I saw Erin and Chada Kelly was writing on the similar topic, the two connected in my head and um, it was really pleasantly surprised how how well they played off one another. Readers who who like feelings heavy books will be completely enraptured by this one. All the characters are super compelling and complex and sympathetic and they all experience those really painful moments of what it is like to be in seventh grade. Those first crushes, not being seen as a whole person but rather parts of a whole. Um, there's this moment when Bird is told she can't be pretty and smart but she can be smart because she's not pretty. And to she kind of responds by turning to an imaginary conversation with one of the Challenger crew women and is really comforted with the idea that there's no singular defining idea of what pretty means anyway. There's a great thread in the story, too, about interracial dating. Um, that's a really powerful reminder of the role parents can play in a young person's perception of themselves and others. And also, it's a really startling reminder that even in the mid-80s, interracial relationships were so fraught. Not that they're not now, but that really wasn't that long ago. And just the way the conversation is about those relationships um, has shifted. I think if you're going to read this one, grab some tissues, but um, know you'll be loving these characters as well. And that is We Dream of Space by Erin Entrada Kelly. Okay. Uh, my next book before I start, I want to give a content warning. I kind of want to piggyback on what Kelly was saying earlier because uh, this one is about a pandemic. And so if that's something that you don't want to listen to me talk about uh, or don't want to think about right now, you're going to want to skip over this recommendation. But as they're seeing in book sales, a lot of people are actually leaning in, as mm -hmm. Kelly also said, <laughs> to pandemics, you know, books about the apocalypse, post-apocalypse that are selling like crazy. Uh, books that are pertaining to pandemics are being moved up while other books in publishing, the dates are being like pushed back. Um, the new Emma Donahue, which was supposed to come out, I think, next year, is now coming out um, in July because it's about the Spanish flu. Like, uh, they're just people are grabbing up everything that they can um, if it's something that they're interested in. So I'm saying that. So skip ahead now. If not, stick with me because I read this great book uh, many months ago called The Down Days by Ilza Hugo. And I wanted this book simply because I saw the cover on Twitter. And it's like this cartoon of a laughing hyena, and it's done in like Neapolitan ice cream colors, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most wild, it's probably my favorite cover of the year. It's like the most wild cover. And I was like, I need that book. I don't even know what it's about. And I got it, and it was about a quarantine, it was like a quarantine city and a pandemic, and this was all months ago. Uh, and so now it's like, whew, 
but I'm still going to talk about it. Um, it's set over one week in this quarantine city at the top of Africa where this outbreak of laughing has started, which is very similar to an outbreak that they had uh, many decades before. Uh, basically, people start laughing. It starts with these three girls. They start laughing and they can't stop laughing. And at first they think it's like, you know, sort of mass hysteria, the kind of uh, mob mentality where they have these little outbreaks every once in a while. Megan Abbott wrote a novel about it where like kids, you know, start doing things similarly. But then it turns very deadly, like people end up in the hospital and they die. It's it's very sad. And so now the city has been walled off because of this outbreak. And it turns into this sort of like Mad Max District 9 area where people are scraping by. And we hear from several different characters in the book. Um, one is a woman named Faith. She Her job is to collect corpses, uh, go around and take care of the dead. But she's also looking for a missing child. She meets a girl who can't find her baby brother. And so she says that she will help her find this child. However, hallucinations are a symptom of this laughing disease. And she's beginning to think that maybe this child doesn't even exist. And there is also a local hustler, and he might be also suffering from these hallucinations. He has a bag of money that belongs to dangerous people that he's supposed to hand over. And he gets distracted because he thinks he sees the woman of his dreams, and he loses this money. And now he has to find it because he's a dead man if he doesn't, if he doesn't recover it. Um, the, and we hear from some other people that are also you know, trying to find their way in the face of the collapse of their world, basically. And it's kind of eerily similar in a lot of ways to um, what's going on right now, where people run out of things, you know, the grocery store doesn't have anything, you know, they're, you know, a lot of the symptoms are the same as what's happening right now. And it's just this week long of what the world will look like when something like this happens. So like I said, if you've been listening to me talk about this causes you any anxiety, you don't want to read this book, maybe save it for another time. Or if you're very interested in reading books like this right now, or it doesn't bother you, um, I recommend it. It is The Down Days by Ilza Hugo. And now it's time for another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shu Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shu Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shu Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Okay. And now for something completely different. Something completely different. Um, my next pick is War and Speech by Don Zolaitis. 
One of my favorite YAs in recent years is the wildly underrated book called The Seven Torments of Amy and Craig. It's this really, really funny story set in the 90s in Janesville, Wisconsin, about two teens who have seven breakups with really, really great, great teen dialogue. And this book, Word and Speech, is Elitis's follow-up to that book. And I'm thrilled that it has equally enjoyable dialogue and wit to it and um, offers some real depth into what is sort of a, an absurd story. Um, Zelitis, I, I always like to share this, he's a playwright and his performances are like the most popular among high schools, something like that. Um, so it's clear why he's really, really good at dialogue. Um, so this story follows a girl named Sydney whose father is in jail for a white collar crime. And when all this took place, she flunked out of her last high school. And so she's starting fresh at a performing arts school not because she's got any talent in her, but because she resides within the school's residential boundaries and can attend the school. Uh, she and her mom are living together in a tiny apartment and money is super tight. Sydney's got this huge chip on her shoulder and going into school, it only grows bigger when she learns that her school is famous for its speech and debate team. Uh, the kids on the team are, in her perception, total jerks. And um, the few new friends that she makes kind of really like give her this impression that this team is just full of people she doesn't want to get to know, that they are sort of like the hot shots on campus. And so Sydney devises this plan to take down the speech team and ensure that the top stars of the team have their lights dimmed. So she's going to she's gonna break this team up from the inside. Uh, so she shows up for the first practice and imagine her surprise when the teacher of the speech and debate team happens to be the man who ran infomercial programs about how to make money and scam people that got her father wrapped up in tax issues in the first place. She's like now super motivated to take down the team. And she starts by um, doing a speech she finds online about becoming a heroin addict. And she does really, really well at it. She wins her first competition and then finds herself earning this elite status in the eyes of her coach. As she begins to better understand the team and the stars of it, she almost starts to see them as human and has some doubts about what she's doing. Like, should she try to take them down or should she be a really good member of the team? So she's debating this until she decides to change her speech and decides that she's going to be really raw and honest about her father being incarcerated and how much that has impacted her. Her mom has this new boyfriend and because of that, her mom doesn't want to visit her dad on Saturdays like she does. So she is sort of the only one there to see her dad's humanity and the way that the system convinced him that having all the best things in life was the entire purpose of life altogether. Um, he broke the law and is serving time for it, but he got caught up in this system that rewards others for doing the very same thing, kind of like the speech coach. He really believes that her speech about her dad needs more depth and that she needs to turn to lying and, quote, making stuff up uh, to make her speech a little bit better. And it's here in this moment of realizing that her speech coach and her teammates are encouraging her to lie, that she knows what she wanted to do from the start and take down this team is the right thing to do. So the book is really, really funny, and it's a really smart look at social class. Sydney and her father experienced wealth for a while during the time her father was evading tax laws, but then she and her mom become very poor really quickly, and her um, mom has a job at the Mall of America, and Sydney, who hates this new man in her mom's life, decides that she's also going to get a part-time job, and it's going to be at the American Cookie Shop in the mall. She gets it because she thinks that if she has this job and can bring in some money, then the boyfriend doesn't have to live with them. But spoiler alert, that's not going to happen. And some of the scenes at the, the cookie shop are among the funniest because Sydney decides she's going to like personalize these cookies and comes up with these super snarky messages and the cookies end up selling really, really well. Throughout the book at times, Sydney is really mean, and some of the choices she makes to take down fellow speech team members aren't especially kind or justified, uh, but, but what I love is that she recognizes this along the way and realizes that the real enemy isn't necessarily the other speech team members, but uh, bigger systematic issues that continue to get instilled in these young people. 
they happen to be collateral damage along the way. Smart dialogue. It really feels like a teen book and not like adults trying to sound like teens. And it's a complex character who's not especially likable, and yet she's super sympathetic. For readers who like humor, who like challenging main characters, um, this is a great one. And the boyfriend who I've mentioned like in passing a couple times I loved him. He is really funny. Um, And even though he is pitted as an enemy throughout the book, we kind of get to understand his humanity and that he has a whole lot more in common with Sydney than she likes to believe. And that is War and Speech by Don Zalaitis. All right. So today for my last pick, I actually decided to change it up a bit. (laughs) I'm feeling a few all rights short of a Hey Ya cover. So I've decided to do a collection of titles. There are so many books coming out today, even with pub dates being moved. Uh, we are recording this on the Wednesday before, so some of these will probably change. They change them like right up to the last minute. Um, but there are like, I have a list of like 200 books coming out today. Mm-hmm. And I could not decide what I wanted to do for my last one. So I want to mention a few more titles that I'm excited about uh, that are coming out. So it's like it's like a bonus round. There is Little Eyes, which is the new Samantha Schweblin. She wrote Fever Dream, which I've read 8 million times, and Mouthful of Birds, great collection of stories. This one is a very contemporary look at electronics. It's about these, like, Furby-like characters that spy on people in their homes. It's kind of a horror novel. It's kind of a, you know, comment on what we're doing and what we're letting into our homes right now. Uh, there is one that I read called The Hilarious World of Depression by John Moe, which is also based on his podcast, uh, which I found to be very interesting, quite funny. He also talks a bit about suicidal ideation, which as like a coping mechanism, which I don't think is discussed enough. And so I found that very interesting. Uh, There is a memoir called Officer Clemens by Francois Clemens, who was on Mr. Rogers, who played Officer Clemens, uh, which is very, very sweet and get out the tissues. Elizabeth Acevedo has a new one called Clap When You Land. Uh, She is the author of With the Fire on High, which I love, and The Poet X, which won the National Book Award. Uh, She's so great. That is the newest one from her. There is one called The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall, which is a debut about a trans boy who is a pirate on a ship uh, that is taking a bunch of passengers hostage. Uh, and he falls in love with a socialite. And there is a captured mermaid involved in the story. So a few weeks ago, I heard this like playlist on some station I was listening to. And I was like, oh, I really like this song. Who is this? I've never heard this band before. And I looked up their stuff and I liked all their stuff. They have the unfortunate name of the Airborne Toxic Event Ooh. right now. Yeah, never heard of them. And this is how I found them during quarantine. Uh, but the lead singer, it turns out, uh, has a memoir coming out today. It's called Hollywood Park. His name is Michael Gillette. And I've heard great things about it. I have not read it yet, but I really want to. And last year, I read a great book called West Side by W.M. Akers, which is this very weird mystery. It takes place in 1921, in which uh, Manhattan is kind of divided down the middle by people who are moving forward and progressing and people who are against technology. And most of the people live on the side of progression. And so there is this like sort of weird west side and Gilda Carr is a woman who lives on that side and she becomes a detective in this very strange world and um, the sequel to that is out today called West Side Saints so if you haven't heard of those or you're waiting for the sequel it is out now there's one that made me think of you Kelly because it's called Cat Yoga which is just (laughs) illustrations of cats doing yoga by Sam Hart Uh, if you're an Emma Straub fan her new novel All Adults Here is out today there is a new Amir McBride who is fantastic I have not read it yet it looks very small which is a great thing when your brain is going all over the place. (laughs) It's called Strange Hotel. And I really, really want to read this book called Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind the Greatest Firsts in History by Cody Cassidy, because I am constantly thinking about things like that. Uh, There was an SNL skit like a million years ago, which was like, Something like, like, we ruined it for you or something, where they, Ellen Cleghorn was, like, the first person to drive off without paying for gas. And, like, all these people that did, like, terrible first things that just ruined it for everyone else, which was very funny. And that's what it makes me think of. (laughs) So, yeah. So, those are some great books out today. And now, Kelly is going to tell us about her last pick. Yeah. And, again, something totally different. This is Almond by Wan Pyong Sun, translated by Ju Sun Lee. And uh, this book is very different, and it's different in a way that's purposeful is to leave readers wondering whether it's a love story or it's a complete tragedy, uh, or maybe both. 
So Yanji was born with alexithalmia, which means his brain is wired so that he doesn't know how to feel or respond to emotions. His mother and his grandmother love him deeply, despite the challenges he has, though he's never been able to really make friends. He's this outsider and others can't relate to him and he can't relate to others. This is obviously a challenge because of his mental challenges. Um, So he lives with his mother above the bookstore that she owns, and she works with him to navigate responding to emotions by creating these sticky notes around the apartment. So like things he should feel and how he should react to certain situations. Yanji isn't especially bothered with his experiences, but Everything changes in an instant on Christmas Eve when his grandmother and his mother are victims of a random act of violence. Um, Not knowing or understanding how to process emotions that are small. Obviously, this big series of emotions really leads uh, Yanji to withdraw. That is until he meets Gon. And Gon is this new classmate who isn't nice to Yanji. Um, In fact, he's kind of a bully. But Gon's story is also tragic, and it's wrapped up in this favor that Yanji agrees to with a man whose wife is on her deathbed. So Yanji is a bit of a victim of bullying here, but he's also unable to stop wondering about and being really desperate to know Gon and his story. By getting close to such an angry person, Yanji is hoping that he might be able to work through the emotions himself, though we don't necessarily get to know Gon well in his own voice. We are led to believe that he is bullying on Yanji, not because he's nasty, but instead because he's impressed with how much that he's been through and never loses his cool. So um, Yanji is like really... He can't express emotions like there's this distance in the book, in the storytelling, and yet you know what he's thinking about them intellectually. So it's never cold. It's just uh, the way it's told. You're like, okay, he's not necessarily processing them or feeling them, but intellectually he understands what's going on. The translator of the book put a note in the back of the book that I thought was really, really interesting. And she said that she thought... There might have been a romantic uh, relationship or romantic feelings between these two characters, though um, in her translation, she held back on pushing that um, because she uh, didn't want to add anything to the story that wasn't there textually. And I thought that that was really fascinating. I love the book for what it was. Um, It's the story about a friendship between two um, outsiders, but I thought it was fascinating to to read this and to think about the way it was translated or what was and wasn't included in the translation. Um, It's originally written in Korean. There is a romance in here, a slight romance, but um, for me, that wasn't really the like thrust of the story. It was this friendship. When an incident happens and Gon's life is in danger, Yangji really pushes through all of his fears. He finds a way to break through his fears and all the things that he has been led to believe about himself. And he's able to step in and potentially become a hero in Gon's story and then leads to him understanding how he is a hero in his own story as well. Um, This is one of those books you don't go in for the plot. There's not a whole lot of plot. This is really a character study. It's a super short book, short chapters, but Each and every word in this one is exacting and offers so much depth to this character, to Yangji, and his experience living with a disorder that doesn't allow him to fully feel or express empathy, even though he consciously understands what it is. This is one of those books I sat down and wanted to blow through, but I kept pausing and putting it down just so I could think about it because there's so much to unpack here. It's complex, it's smart, and the title almond comes from the metaphor of the almond referring to the shape of the amygdala. It's a really, really apt metaphor. This is uh, Sun's debut novel, and it was an award winner in Korea. And uh, as the translator notes in the book, this being brought to the U.S. is pretty incredible. It's marketed as YA in Korea, but in the U.S. it's being marketed for adults. Um, as I read this, I thought this was actually a perfect YA book for readers who like those really literary and challenging books. And anyone who's familiar with the older YA title, Nothing by Jenny Teller, will for sure want to pick this one up. And anybody who wants to read more broadly uh, global literature, 
the stories of adolescents who don't often get to have their stories told. And then stories with neuroatypical characters will love this one. There's just, there's so much to unpack in this, this little tiny book. And again, not super plot driven. So obviously the plot I've told you is very character based because it is very much a character story. And that is Almond by Wan Pyong Sun, translated by Ju Sun Lee. All right. Those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I just started Camp by Elsie Rosen, who uh, wrote Jack of Hearts and Other Parts a couple years ago that I loved. It was just a, a YA gay rom-com. And that is what I expect this to be. What about you? I'm very excited for that one as well. I have a copy around here somewhere. Um, I am reading, I just started the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying mm. Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Somehow I, I got it in time and I, and like, I don't know why I didn't read it before it came out, but it was called uh, Steel Magnolias Meets Dracula. It's like <laughs> set in the 90s and it's pretty hilarious so far. I've only read like the first 30 pages, but I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, so those are books. I have something book related that I am super excited to tell you right now. And if you're thinking that I'm excited today, this is only like half as wound up as I was last week. Poor Patricia. I drank like a chug of chai concentrate before we recorded <laughs> because, you know, she's on the West Coast. So I had to stay up late. Uh, so I'm pretty calm today. But so when all of the um, stuff started happening with the quarantine, the National Theater announced that they would be putting up broadcasts of their productions and i was like please be frankenstein please be frankenstein i've been waiting and finally they announced it uh and starting today while we're recording which is thursday um i think i might have said wednesday earlier it's thursday who knows um they <laughs> are broadcasting both versions of frankenstein now many years ago when i worked at the bookstore i also worked at a local theater uh working the ticket booth and we did the live stream of frankenstein which is a production by danny boyle with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. They are the only two actors in it, and every night they switch roles. One plays the doctor, one plays the creature. Uh, and so I've seen both versions. It was fantastic. And I tell you that I work at the theater for this reason because never in like the history of all the time that I spent there did anybody ask for something as much as they asked for Frankenstein again. They kept saying like, when are you going to have it back? When? And we were like, we're sorry, it was like a live stream and that's it. And you know, it hasn't been showing anywhere else. So this is very exciting. So for a week... So it, we'll be in the middle of it when this airs. Um, you can watch both versions on the National Theater's YouTube site. And I highly recommend... I can't pick... People have, like, a favorite. I cannot pick which way I like it better. I, I love them both. I'm just... They're so good. I've been waiting to see this again. So I had to share that with everyone. It's literary related. I mean, it's, like, it's Frankenstein. Totally. Um, and it's fun and it's something to do. It's something to look forward to. So there is that tip for you. And that is it for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Uh, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. You can find us on Instagram. Kelly is Hey Kelly Jensen. I am Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes. There are so many at bookriot.com slash all the books as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.